<laughs> that was weird. <laughs> the following program is produced with a broadcasting vengeance by Matthew Allen of the Outlaw Radio Network. I am the legendary Burl Bear. Mark Boyer is here with me. Hello. Howard Lapidus, manager of the Star, is off in a baseball game. Football. Football, same difference. No, it isn't. Okay. Welcome to True Crime Uncensored. And today we're going to bring this whiskey-drinking generation to its senses. Does that sound familiar? No. Timothy Leary said that to me one day, one time ago. Dennis. Dennis. Yes, sir. Junpo Dennis Kelly. It's a pleasure to have you here. Just uh, just was reading a book about your life. It's a rather large book. It's a tall book. You have a very tall life. Tall and skinny. Tall and skinny life. Absolutely amazing. Uh, Dennis Kelly's life is part Hunter S. Thompson, part Timothy Leary, part Eckhart Tolle. A heart blown open. What an incredible story. And people say, why is this man on True Crime Uncensored? Because the show is a crime. That's just, Well, yes, what we do here is criminal. <laughs> <laughs> and there have been some real movements that are going to try to stop this thing in its tracks. But you've been a criminal before. In fact, you may be a criminal now in the minds of some. Oh, stop. Well, you never know. I love transformation stories. In fact, I was just in Wisconsin, and that's a place that definitely needs transformation. <laughs> We're working on it. We're working on it. You come from uh, an interesting little background there. Tell us uh, tell us a little bit about how you were born as a young man. Well, he had a mother. Yes, and a father. <laughs> and I had a father, too, and I had a mother and a father, and it was a difficult start for me. My mother and father, my father had Rh-negative blood. Ooh. So uh, they were not supposed to have any kids, so they tried to have 15. <laughs> eight, eight of us made it. Yeah. And seven, one died. He was my brother before me. He just lived one day. Mm. And then my mother had six late-term miscarriages. Ouch. So mm. they were determined to have a big family, and we made it. But that was an interesting, where it's, that's actually where my journey began, intrauterine. Because my mother was creating me and uh, killing me at the same time. Ouch. That's an interesting little duality dichotomy there. We could all be Zoroastrians. And what was yeah. she doing to uh, endanger Well, it was in the blood. Yeah, blood factor. So yeah. what happens is uh, you're, you you got a time schedule. I came at seven months with no fingernails. So, uh, would you, you have some leap press on nails? What do you do in that situation? <laughs> I came out extremely pissed off and uh, <laughs> frightened and alienated from women. Yeah. It's a great start. Great, great way to begin things. Yeah. When, when, when I was born, my first words were trust fund. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I thought mine were trust fun. Oh, yeah. And you did for quite a while. Speaking of, now, do you think that, now, this is an oddball question, but you haven't been asked this before. Maybe you have. Do you think that the inter-uterine experience explains your problems with women? Well, uh, it explained uh, from one deep shadow perspective the difficulty that I had in as my ego formed because of the fear factor. I always thought it was related to you know insult in during my early conditioning years and one two three years three, three years old, but I discovered it was deeper than that. That was an interesting journey. Yeah, yeah, because I, I I read with uh, with great interest. You have these w wonderful relationships with a variety of women, sometimes more than one at a time, and yet they uh, they seem to somehow go by the wayside. Well, life is impermanence. Yeah, nothing is permanent. Not even this room. Not you and I, Brenda. You said. <laughs> but the light that we shine in the universe. Yes. Is forever. Yeah. So there you were on a quest. You wanted more than faith. You wanted evidence. 
Well, I mean, are we a little... You know, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to Dennis. Yeah, but, you know, how about we <laughs> skipped over a whole bunch of good stuff? Okay, go ahead. <clears throat> so, you, uh, your childhood wasn't uh, that, that wonderful, was it? Well, the first uh, couple of years, it was divine. It was just my older brother and my mother and I. And uh, my father was the sweetest guy, and he went to ward. He got stuck over there in Burma for two and a half years in the Japanese atrocities. They actually crucified some of his buddies and, and got them. I don't know if you know about the atrocities in the Second World War, but yeah. they came upon soldiers who were, had been airmen who had been crucified, and their intestines were hanging on the ground. Yeah. So it got really ugly, and he came back, uh, and he was... He was fine until he drank, and then when he drank, it all broke open, and he went crazy. I've seen that right here. Yeah, it happens. Yeah. So, so I was—that was, you know. So I grew up inside that vehicle, and you know that again sets up conditioning patterns of flight and fright and uh, shut down. And so, yeah, it was—it was kind of messy to begin with. So, did you fight or flight from Wisconsin? Well, I fled. First of all, I just fled from home. You know, I lived there, but I wasn't there. You know, I, worked, yeah. I started working when I was a kid as early as possible and two paper routes. And so I was always gone. I was either running or working or playing or something. But it sounds know. like you emotionally distanced yourself from, from what was going on. Yeah, and, and avoided. So I became extremely vigilant. Yeah, hypervigilant. And then also... I, was, I had this, developed this desire. I needed to understand. Nothing made any sense. You know, love and hate and everything were all mixed up. So it was like, and how could one turn on and be off? And how can my father love me and be with me and the next time, you know, just uh, be violent and beat me? You know, it made no sense. So it was one of the conditions and circumstances to set up the quest. An interesting little piece of information, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, uh, but the research has shown that people who become angry, violent drunks, it's, uh, Are they named Burl? No, I'm not. I don't drink, and I'm not violent and angry today. <laughs> uh, is a symptom of an undiagnosed, other undiagnosed medical condition, because not everyone becomes an angry drunk or a violent drunk, but those who are have one of five uh, undiagnosed medical conditions. I didn't know psoriasis was so dangerous. <laughs> not psoriasis, but uh, that, no, that, that is true. I just thought I'd pass that on. <clears throat> So I, I was curious to hear some about uh, your first marriage and why you were um, persuaded to get married at such a young age. Oh, because of a uh, pregnancy. Ah, That'll do it. Well, I'll do it. Yeah, but it turned out that uh, she wasn't pregnant. She, <laughs> she just desired to have a child, so she developed the symptoms. Uh-huh. And uh, she had a very difficult childhood as well. We married each other and... Uh, not with the violence, but with the alienation and emotional abuse, you might say. So they, they held a false shotgun on you at the wedding. Yeah, by choice. What happened was, uh, you know, we fell in love, and she was my first lover, and and, uh, and we decided that since she was pregnant, we'd get married. So what happened is I got married at 17. I left high school and got married and went to work. You're a hardworking guy. Yep. So, uh, oops. But be careful, that book will kill you. I know. <laughs> I'm holding this book in my head. If it fell out of my head, it would kill me. Uh, <laughs> uh, when this quest obviously starts starts young, you're looking for something, looking to make sense out of things. How many different things did you try? Well, I tried traditional Christianity, Roman Catholicism, and uh, then what happened is I, tr I turned to alcohol, 
and you know as a as a way to keep a lid on things and uh, then i found uh, psychedelics mm-hmm. i f- found you know cannabis and followed with that with the psychedelic investigation so that was the beginning and then simultaneously i started meditation from uh, early zen training in the 60s and so meditation concentration practices and then the vehicle of uh, ashtanga yoga the krishna patabi joyce lineages went to india and studied it and then eventually returned then i did a lot of therapy uh wonderful process is still going on called the hoffman process it's a seven-day uh, family journey of identifying and understanding and clearing your patterns of reactivity and uh, then returned back to uh, my zen tradition yeah, when it went off and the let's uh, let's talk about the first time you did acid. For those of you who don't know, acid refers to LSD twenty five. Oh, that's what I did wrong. It was LSD twenty four. <laughs> that was your problem. That's why you didn't get off. <laughs> well, one of the problems with LSD LSD twenty five twenty five is simply the twenty fifth experiment that Doctor Hoffman did with lysergic acid, bathylamide. Yeah. And uh, so that was the 25th experiment, and then he he accidentally ingested it, discovered it to be a, a powerful psychotropic. So my first experience, uh, I had smoked marijuana and quit had quit drinking, and discovered that there were better drugs than alcohol, and marijuana being a wonderful uh, uh, substitute without the downside. So uh, I, I smoked uh, pot for years. And the fellow that uh, he got my first pot from was a Mexican and uh, quite a gentleman. And he had actually been to prison. He was a real quiet, really sweet guy. And he told me that he had some Sandoz LSD from Switzerland. Hmm. This was, I don't know, 1965 maybe. And uh, so we, he said, we went out to the barrio in San Francisco. We went to this house with him. And there's a, a Mexican woman there, single mom with three kids in a little tiny apartment. So she had sugar cubes from mm. Switzerland. And we said, okay, well, great. So my buddy and I sat down. We each took one, and we, we waited, and we waited, and nothing happened. So she said, Take oh, another one. okay. So we said, that's what we said. Well, maybe it's not strong enough. Let's buy another one. So we bought another one, and still nothing happened. Another half hour went by, and we said, well, okay, give us our money back. We're leaving. She starts weeping. I can't do that. They're going to come for their money tomorrow. And we go, oh, no, what a mess. We said, just, okay, just forget about it. I'm sorry. It must be us, you know. So we left, and we're driving back into San Francisco up to, up the hill on Goff Street. And uh, all of a sudden, things start getting very soft and liquid. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like the most famous bicycle ride in history. Yeah, things start slowing down very much, and all of a sudden, things start opening up. And so we're driving up, and the driver we got, he turns left, but I don't turn left. I go right out of the car and head right into this brick building. And as I get to the brick, I get, I go in, I get, I get microscopic vision, yeah. and then I get deeper than microscopic vision. I go right into the, the molecules and the form of the molecules, and then from there I go into the atoms and then the quarks and then neutrons and then all of a sudden bam i'm di- i'm gone and the next thing you know pow i'm back in the car and i went ooh, <laughs> <laughs> ooh. Let's, let's go back and buy some more sugar cubes <laughs> this is interesting and that uh, was the beginning of the journey but uh how, how many yeah. times do you think uh, you uh, you took acid in, in your career i don't know 
More than once not, a week? Not, <laughs> not many. More than five? I'd, I'd probably say not more than 50. Oh, yeah. lightweight. Life. Well, I went into you know I went into the business and you know running the international corporation and working twenty hours a day you don't have time for that's right yeah I was also, just saying that you know to the next level which is the, the level of disintegration of ego and 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 actually experience consciousness deeper than ego which reflected an experience I had when I was a child which actually set up the whole quest when I was three maybe three years old something like that. My parents were fighting. My father never struck my mother, but they'd scream at each other. And uh, so I was hiding under the bed in a little puddle of my own urine and just terrified. And all of a sudden, I just dropped deep into consciousness and went into this pristine state, not of disso dissociation, mm -hmm. but of absolute clarity. And I discovered a quality and a depth of mind that was stable. And I also then, so suddenly, that's what really molded me and drove me to seek a deeper understanding of mind and ego and, and nature. And that's what led me to the Buddhist tradition with the teaching of non-self or non-atma. What does that mean, no self, right? Well, it means the consciousness at the depth of purity is deeper than your, your self-referencing, your egocentric referencing, your reaction to sensation. There's a consciousness deeper. So that's the experience, and then I could doing that, setting up ritual investigation and meditation concentration, and then in the yogic and the Zen tradition, meditative tradition, I achieved the same state of of, of clarity or imperturbable consciousness. Yeah, I remember when uh, I used to see Timothy Lee. In fact, uh, Uncle Tim and I were supposed to have dinner together with Tom Robbins uh, several years ago, but unfortunately, my father died the day before, and that kind of put a crimp in my plans to show up. <laughs> oh, too bad. Yeah. I never met him. Uh, never met my father. I never met Tim. <laughs> <laughs> Both of them. Both of them. Uh, I met uh, Timothy Leary uh, two or three times and uh, found him vastly amusing. And, uh, quite a, yeah, quite I used to practice with Ram Dass a little bit, but I never met Tim. Yeah, and uh, he would talk about, you know, the thing of, of us being like robots, just going along with whatever our reaction, whatever our response has been, even if it doesn't work, even if we get the same lousy results, we just keep, you know, over and over again without taking... Yeah, that's when you, if you go deep enough into into clarity and witness your, your egocentric consciousness, you'll discover it's wholly conditioned. And your reaction to sensation is laid down as a neurolinguistic or a neurological structure. An excitement happens, but nothing happens until you associate it with some kind of memory space. Mm -hmm. So all, we're, we're literally little robots until you start to wake up and realize, no, you don't have to. But in order to do that, you have to create a pathway, and that's what spiritual practice, genuine spiritual practice is about, not getting into some high state, subtle state of, of wonder, but getting, getting free to reorganize and redefine your reality through discipline. There, there are other um, interpretations of the same concept that have been around for a long time. Uh, the underlying concepts of Dianetics and the reactive mind and rewriting uh, those, uh, um, those predefined or pre-built responses. Bradshaw's coming home and the uh, scripts, rewriting the internal scripts that you're built over time. Exactly. And it's there's a shift in understanding, a fundamental shift in understanding of the yogic and the Buddhist tradition. The yogic tradition still does the reincarnation, confusing yeah. belief system, and the ego is a continuance rather than ego is a temporary phenomenon. 
but but when you break it down, you get to that truth. Even if we took and regressed you now down to, say, an infant state, you discover that you don't have language. There's no inside and there's no outside. You're shitting on yourself and laying on the floor. You know, yeah. you, you Sounds like a night at the Lighten Up Lounge. <laughs> <laughs> so you, but you get it at that point, and then what happens is you start to layer down translation and reaction experiences, and you create an ego. Before, you know, the, the, the infant has no ego as persona yet, just as reaction and genetic uh, structure. Well, Larry used to talk about uh, using acid to uh, reprogram yourself, break down the old programming and choose what programming you're going to do. That may have been a, a little uh, advanced for, <laughs> for the people he was talking to at the time. But um, I was at uh, uh, Temple Bet Shuva here. I was asked to teach a Torah study class. And as I said, uh, the Torah is the tree of life. We can afford to go out on a limb. <laughs> I was suggesting that pretend you have a remote control and uh, it has the control pause, reflect, play. You know, human beings can choose, and we forget Excellent. that. Yeah, this is what we do inside my training. What we do is what I've done is I say I'm a post teacher. And what I did is I inherited an ethnocentric cultural tradition, right, mm -hmm. that has a particular way, and they have these cons or these riddles to stop your mind. And so what I, we do these koans, it's like the first koan that we'll use in a, in a meditation practice period in fundamental training is, is it possible for you to listen with no opinion? Can you just purely listen with no opinion? And if you admit that, then we've begun the possibility. But it's not just admitting it, it's having the experience. If you can listen with, a lot of, with just an opinion, you're at the root of consciousness. You're at the point of choice. Hmm. So then we, after dialoguing, deconstructing, and reconstructing a view, we'll get to the simple question like, okay, has anyone ever made you angry? And the response is always all, all the time. And you say, okay, slow way back down and get to it. That no one's made you angry. You've reacted with violence. And from a deep, clear perspective, that's not even a feeling. It's a violent intervention. What are you actually feeling? So if you slow it down, you go deep enough, you'll discover what you're feeling is fear. Mm -hmm. You can't be violent and it's an intervention unless you're experiencing fear. Well, if you really understand fear, fear is excitement and, under, and, un, excuse me, excitement and opportunity. You have the opportunity and you're excited and you care about something deeply. So deep care drives the fear and intelligence overrides the reactivity and suddenly you're the boss. Suddenly you're free. Absolutely amazing. And you know, there was a research that showed that the chemical in your brain of anger is out after 90 seconds. If you're still angry after 90 seconds, you're self-perpetuating it. <laughs> We're going to take a 60-second break, so don't get angry. We'll be right back on True Crime Uncensored. Hi, I'm the legendary Burl Bear, raised on records, born to rock and roll. I'm also a very famous, influential, and undeniably charming author. <laughs> I got a new book coming out December 4th called Body Count, the true story of the Spokane serial killer Robert Lee Yates Jr. He was not a nice fellow in his spare time. In his non-spare time, he was a Desert Storm veteran, father of five, nice guy. Everyone liked him until he killed him. Well, it's a fascinating story. Meantime, pick up my other new book, Headshot. There's more than two and a half psychopaths in that one and some really disgusting photos. And while you're at it, get Masters of True Crime, 17 true crime authors, all in one dandy book. And of course, I'm a master of true crime, which makes me more than master of my own domain. 
And now, back to True Crime Uncensored, starring me and Mark C.G. Boyer and our special guest. Back to True Crime. How's exciting? Uncensored with Burl Bear and Howard Lapinas. He's not here. Not here. Featuring Mark C.G. Boyer. I certainly hope so. And sometimes Marie Mackey, Esquire. Not here either. No, she'd have the hot stuff for our guest. Produced by Magic Matthew Allen. <laughs> and who produces him? Who in turn is produced by Laurie Downey Jr. Who wouldn't want that? I got a question for you. We're talking to John Poe Dennis Kelly, the subject of a new book by Keith Martin Smith called A Heart Blown Open, a very well-written, fascinating story of this guy's life, which uh, covers everything from him getting traumatized as a child before he was born to uh, becoming one of the largest, uh, not in physical size, LSD manufacturers in America. Uh, you were cranking out a lot of that stuff, weren't you? No, well, not that much. of a five million... Doses. We were we were a very small, very very dedicated family. We produced only 100% denormal, absolutely bone dry LSD 25. So it took us 14 days to do a little synthesis of a batch, and then we spent 14 days purifying it. Good but for you. Over 10 years, five million hits we distributed around the world. So we were devoted. Yeah, you were. Hmm. Until you were undevoted by local constabulary. Well, I was never uh, arrested, and I was charged with conspiracy to manufacture, but we were never interfered with. Things fell apart at the end, and we got known, so we, you know, we had to shut down. But uh, uh, so I went. I had to come back. I went underground for five years. And, uh, yeah, you changed your name. You're, you know, kind of like uh, Richard Kimball without the one-armed man. Yeah, and I was, uh, you know, so once you're underground, if you've got resources and you're smart, it's, it takes an act of God to get you caught, so to speak. Yeah. So what I did is I came back and surrendered myself so that I could get on with my life. I was running out of money and tired of hiding. Yeah, well, you, what was your deal? Like, uh, was it uh, 18 months or something like that? Well, my original deal was $50,000 in 18 months, and uh, then that deal fell apart. You know, the, the only reason the system, prison, I mean, the court system works is because of deals, and they're not really supposed to be made between, you know, judge and the DA and you. And the judge had agreed to the deal, but when I got in the arraignment, he stood up and started spitting, and I thought he was going to have a heart attack. I was going to jail. I was facing 35 years. I'm going to jail forever, and... Uh, so then the DA said to me, oh, my God, we all left. And he said, oh, well, you can go back underground, Mr. Kelly. You <laughs> go hide. Father and everybody put up their houses. I can't go underground. They're going to let me go again. And I said, no, this doesn't work. So fortunately, we could change venues. And I went up to Portland, Oregon, instead of San Francisco, where we, were, we could do work either venue. But I had to stand to an open count. They dropped all charges except one. But I had to stand to a possible five-year sentence from Judge Burns. And because I had had my own Zen Yoga Center going at that time uh, and teaching, the judge said he had to put me in prison, but he didn't think it would help society or me any. Yeah, I, th uh, I found that a fascinating statement. Yeah. So so you already were yeah. rehabilitated at this point. Well, well, yeah. me, it was a, I think it was a $15,000 fine in two years. 
a two-year sentence. But then, miraculously, my attorney, you can have a review of sentence for longer sentences if you think something's wrong. So we, we waited uh, eight months or seven months before the extinguished date on the uh, review and asked for a review. And he wanted to know what was I was doing in prison. So he sent a review to the prison, and the prison said I was running a body-mind program. I was teaching full marathon running, uh, yoga, and Zen meditation, body, program I call body-mind. And they, when he found that out, he said, let him out. He'll do better work on the outside. Mm. So I only did t- ten and a half months, but they messed with me. They oh, lost yeah. my paperwork three times. They had fun with me until I walked in and saw the warden and started laughing. I said, well, when you guys get around, you let me go. They let me go the next day. Oh. Um, <laughs> there was something um, uh, that I have never heard about. A, was this a federal prison? Federal prison. Yeah, that was, was something interesting about prison. this prison. Oh, God, this is too much. My karma you know, my, is hysterical. So I'm going off to prison, and you know, I'm looking at two years, so I get myself going. And you got to go check in. You know, so my beloved drives me up there, and we kiss and say goodbye, and I walk up and ring the doorbell, right? And it's a, it's a cage, a wire cage, double wires. And I walk in, <clears throat> click, and I get inside. <clears throat> they open another click, and I go in. And, and uh, one interesting thing about this prison, it's a model. There are two of them. There's one on the East Coast, and this is in Pleasanton, California, in 91 and uh, 92. And... They uh, had an experimental prison, 200 men, 100 women. It was like a little state college with no courses. <laughs> they had, so it was a co-ed prison. It was a co-ed prison. They had three buildings. There were 100 guys in my, my building, 100 in another building, and 100 women in another building. And we interacted during the day. We had street clothes and everything. And, uh, you know, it was like the model for the future of the federal prison system. That place is now a triple-bunk federal maximum security. They, things have turned and gone a little different direction with the system. But so they had all these visitors from all over the world, the future of the federal, you know. A kinder, gentler prison. Yeah, it was a crazy place. The name of the game was Guard the Beaver. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if you know about prison, but when you go to prison, you'll get maximum, medium, or, or minimum security. And this was minimum security. with It was fenced and wired and camered with armed guards and everything, but... Uh, it's minimum, and with a, when you go to prison, you'll go in for a long time. They take you out a maximum if you live through it. Then they put you in medium. Then they'll take you out, and they put you in a minimum security, so you get ready to stick you out in the world. Then they stick you in a halfway house or someplace mm-hmm. you know, to, as they try to get a job and integrate you back in. So the name of the game then is everybody behaves in a medium security. And here, but you can't behave. These guys have been in prison 10, 15 years, and suddenly they got 100 women. <laughs> and these are tough girls. Oh, yeah. And a lot of them are quite cute. And so it was, the name of the game was Guard the Beaver. Everybody was having sex. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, including the crazy. guards, no doubt. Yeah, there's one great story I got for you. So we're out playing football, playing, uh, kicking the soccer ball around. And uh, so the guard, there was one guard that worked in the afternoons, and he must have weighed 350 pounds. So he's guarding, and it's a huge soccer field at the corner. So this guy this uh, American Indian brother said he hadn't had any sex in like 13 years and he fell in love with a little, little girl in the prison so we said okay how are we going to do this so what we did is we kicked the ball all the way over to the opposite side of the field <laughs> way over and this guard looks he's looking at us like when we ran all the way over there we formed a wall 
they jumped on the ground, pull their pants down, and they're going at it. And this guy tries to run. He runs four or five steps. He stops. <laughs> so they managed to get it done by the time the guard got there. We, we blocked his vision. So they stood up. So that was my great act of compassion during my prison days. It wasn't teaching the yoga and the meditation. It was the... It was the you know, one one chance for somebody to get laid. Well, one congratulations. Time. That's a good deed. That was your ticket to heaven, right there. <laughs> Do you ever have you ever heard of the uh, the movie The Ninth Configuration with Stacy Keach? No. Uh, it's a it's the story of a war vet um, who they send to this um, experimental prison. It's an incredible movie. Yeah, put that on your list. The uh, ninth what? Uh, configuration. The ninth configuration. The ninth configuration. Okay. Oh. Yeah, that no nutty professor. Put those two together. <laughs> uh, no, the ninth configuration is a deadly serious. <laughs> oh yeah, really I, off the wall. Movie. I, like I like those. Well, then you would enjoy it. It's really yeah. well done. So you uh, you're in this prison. That must have been fun. Uh, you get out. You got to start a life. But the one one thing that just keeps nagging at me, and I, I have, probably maybe should apologize for coming back to it, Brenda. Have you talked to Brenda at all since, uh, I mean, you two were together for quite a while. At a, quite Thank a relationship. Yeah. Uh, since the day that she left, have you spoken to her? Oh, yes. I, go, I annually go out. I lead a retreat out in California every year at a Zen Center in Sonoma, the Sonoma Mountain Zen Center. I've been doing that for de over a decade. And I go there every year, and I always stay with Ed and Brenda. She's married to Ed, and we're buddies. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, beloved Brenda. Yeah. I thought you had a, a very interesting relationship with her. Tell us about the wonderful birthday present she gave you. <laughs> this is an enlightening experience. Okay. So Brenda and I, we're, we're basically monogamous. But occasionally we'll have an affair. But it's all up aboard board and we'll discuss it and everything, right? So she had an affair with this art dealer and owed me one. And, you know, and, and so... But you know we're not we don't we don't keep not looking for anything. Yeah. So, but what happened was a dear friend and his lover split up after a few years, and she was alone and hadn't had any good sex in the longest time. And so we're underground, living in the twentieth floor of this incredible sunrise sunset apartment down north of Palm Beach. It's a place called Singer Island. And so she shows up somehow because uh, we had incredible security. They managed to get her out and secretly brought in and. So she's there for a dinner, and it's just wonderful. And we always loved each other, liked each other a great deal. We never had sex or anything, but the uh, energy was there So because it was family. And the best thing, incest is not a great idea. No. So uh, she, uh, uh, we all had dinner. We had dinner one night, and then Brenda says, okay, you guys, you know, I'll do the music and the fruit, which was a deal that, Mary, that Brenda and I had. And... Uh, so all of a sudden, there she is in my arms. <laughs> so I had a little surprise, little surprise birthday present of uh, beautiful lovemaking with a beautiful friend. And it was just once, and uh, it was sweet as could be. And uh, that was the nature of the, uh, the nature of the intimacy between Brenda and I. And yet, when uh, you invited your mistress to another party, she got ticked off. Well, that was just stupidity on my part. Yeah, I what noticed that. I, was going to, I didn't know if I was going to prison forever. Or, you know, everything had fallen apart, and so, so, uh, and I had uh, uh, an affair with a with a uh, Oriental woman, and 
and suggested that she come to our uh, party. Engagement party, no less. Yeah, Brenda and I were, had gotten engaged, and uh, so what I said is she should come to the she should come to the party. And and Brenda realized at that particular point that she didn't care, and so she cared, but what was more important is she didn't care, and she realized also that our lives were it was just a pivotal point. It was a mm-hmm. shock for her, but she also said to me, Dennis, in in all of my years, I've never never considered being a minister's wife as I move more deeply into the yoga and the meditation, teaching and practicing. You know, she's a Germanic, uh, ex- exquisitely talented uh, artist and craftsperson, and, uh, you know, didn't make, any, didn't make sense to her. So our lives just took a, to, separated. She was there for me all the while I was in prison, and, and uh, then after that we, we split up and separated. What, what struck me, no pun intended, or intended, was that, even though you were doing this Zen thing and all that, you hauled off and slapped her. Yes, she broke my heart. And uh, uh, I That must her. have been as pivotal for you as for having... Was there some self-realization of this is me doing this here, this is my hand slapping her in the moment? No. Not at all? Not beforehand, after. After, yeah. Yeah, and I was absolutely shocked. And it was it was fine. She was she was perfectly content with it. It was like an expression of of unbelievable pain and heartbreak. And uh, you know, so it wasn't like, oh my God, you hit me. You know, we we both cried and she left. And you moved on. What I yeah, I moved on. Yeah, back off to the monastery train. I got ordained in in eighty two, and came out in eighty four and opened my own Zen center. Zen Yoga Center in California for four years, and then I went back to the monastery in '87 and spent six years running the place. I want to go back in time just a little bit. To uh, it was almost like you were uh, going through the aisles at uh, the supermarket, trying different foods with the different uh, people you studied under. Their different approaches. Some of them were uh, enlightened con men. Some of them were. Uh, uh, the one fellow I, I can't recall his name, but uh, you had some acid with you. And you gave the, you gave the fellow some acid. You're very interested to see what his response would be, because you said you could see God, and he says I already see God. And uh, well, it was Swami Garibala over in India. Yeah, yeah. yeah what happened was uh, uh, I always traveled with a little stash, and uh, and so we were talking about LSD, and and uh, he asked if I had any. And he said, could he see it? Right? So I had, I think it was, I can't remember, four Seven, hits, I yeah, guess it was. Four hits or six hits. Mm. So I cooked a little bottle out. I brought it and showed it to him. And he took it, shook it in his hand, and he popped it in his mouth. And he said, thanks. <laughs> I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> he took all of it? Yeah, seven. Yeah, he took all of it. Because he'd never had any LSD. And, oh, yeah. you know, and look, when I told him about, uh, you know, you can see God when you take LSD, he laughed and said, I see God all the time. He said, but I'd like to really experience it, right? So I didn't know he was going to take it. So he took it. So he said, come back tomorrow morning. So I said, oh, my God, what the Swami's going to go off the planet or something. You know, I'm here. What have I done? So I'm kind of anxious. And I go back the next morning. He's just pouncing around. He's just laughing. And I go, oh, my God, Swami, you saw God again? He says, well, look, I'm telling you. Mr. Kelly, I'm telling you, I haven't seen God all the time. But I must tell you, have you got any more of that stuff? And I said, why? If you see God all the time. He said, isn't God? He said, 
his name was uh, uh, Hoffman, and he was a German, and who fled the Nazis, German mm. Jew, and he, he was he was translating and writing in German and French, and he'd forgotten a lot of his language, so he was up all night, twelve hours writing. He said, "I finished so much writing." He said, "My memory came back. I could remember all of the language." He said, it was just fabulous. Can you, have got any more of that? <laughs> so they're seeing God in another way. You had one of your mentors. Uh, you asked a question about uh, your ability to follow the path. And I, I thought he had an interesting response. Did that ring a bell? Yeah. So I, 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 I ran up against the little moral dilemma you could say or and and uh didn't do anything horrible but it really shattered my view of myself so i thought if this is where i'm at what you know what can i do what can i do you know i mean why am i not awake enough to 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 be remain compassionately conscious in all my behaviors and uh so I called him, and this was Edo Shimane Roshi, my, my, my teacher, my abbot, the one who's recognized me as a, as a Zen teacher. And uh, I called him and said, Edo Roshi, am I trainable? Because I'd studied with him for over a decade. This was before I went back to the monastery for six years. And he said, hmm, Jumbo, hmm, I think you're worth civilizing. Come on out. <laughs> <laughs> arguments. He'd say, there is no Zen outside of the Japanese culture. And I'd say, I'm never going to become Japanese, Adoroshi. You know, there has to be. Oh, yes. And he said, yeah. You can't have, have something universal and particularistic simultaneously. <laughs> but I understood what he said. Like he said, you've been to Japan. You see the depth and the beauty of the culture. Right? That's not separate from, you know, so I say, so as Zen culture becomes Americanized, it's still going to have the, the aesthetic. It'll have a different formality, but essentially the foundational uh, love of order and, and precision and clarity is going to be there. So how do you, I guess it may be easier to do than it sounds, to take the essence of uh, the practice, the technique, the purpose, strip it of its, uh, what do you want to say, the... I was talking behind because they take away the, the uh, man-made traditions, cultures, cultural imperatives, uh, and get to the essence of it and put it in the American culture so it's easier for people to grasp. Well, that's where it gets too tricky. The question is what I say, let's dump out the bathwater and keep the baby. Like, so we're in transition. Like, I normally lead seven-day retreats as, as tra really intense training periods. They follow the basic form from the monastery as far as we start at 5 o'clock in the morning and go to 9.30 at night, you know, with a couple of one-hour breaks. And so, but what we've, so we're doing is a lot of meditation practice, concentration awareness practice, you know, meditation practice. But we've added to that practice the dialogue practice, the dialectic dialogues, a Socratic tradition, but in the Zen tradition it's called Mondo, and that's a dialogue where we ask these questions to reboot you, to, to shift your perspective. But I say from egocentric to awake-centric. Boot just means awake. Buddha is just awakened being. Mm -hmm. It's not a particular character. So it's like, so we get, we shift your philosophical perspective with those questions. It's possible for you to listen. Is there pure consciousness within you at this moment? 
so we play that dialogue process and have the experience and then then claim the experience and establish uh, injunctions and signifiers that access that. And then we go on from there to say, okay, now meditation, why bother? So we've established that as an argument and an experience and have put it in the download. And we say, okay, now, now let's take a look at your emotional body from a conscious perspective rather than a reactive perspective. So it's a modernization of of the process. It's the same process, but it's tidied up and put in a real simple formality, as opposed to the old tradition. Like there are 1,700 questions in the in the in the koan riddles from China and Japan, and the question is, what are you trying to do with those? What is the objective? To develop genuine insight and consciousness deeper than your ego, and then to re- reframe your view and allow you that liberty and consciousness in your life and and your your reactivity from an egocentric point of view. So it's it's a modernization and a consolidation of the ancient system and process in a, from a modern perspective. I find it fascinating because it's it's. Uh... Things that are universal you find popping up just about everywhere. Because <laughs> I tell you, it is similar to the pause, reflect, play uh, technique that I was using. And uh, uh, in Torah study, you know, they're always studying the same stories over and over and over again, which is not to memorize the story so that you can tell about uh, Joseph or Jacob and this, that, and the other thing. It's what, how is this a mirror? Uh, what does this tell us about the human condition? What are the messages? What does it say to me? How do I respond in these situations? What's, and it keeps changing. The more you do it, the more it changes, or more it changes you, or you change yourself, uh, as opposed to just learning the stories. Uh, you know, they say what that there's uh, uh, you know four levels to Torah study: the story, then the story behind the story. It just keeps going and going and going and going. Uh, it's a never-ending process. And we find this, whether it's in American Indian traditions or uh, the Eskimos or the African tribesmen or uh, Judaism, Islam, uh, Christianity, uh, there's this quest. And in reading the story about you by uh, Keith Martin Smith, the book's called The Heart Blown Open, there's all these uh, continual processes of, I mean, you've, you've reinvented yourself more often than Madonna, and you're taller than she is, I think. Uh, and your teeth are a little better shape but uh, uh, it doesn't stop Uh, I don't know how you're going to reinvent yourself next uh, but it doesn't stop I mean you you didn't stop your process when you became gentle Dennis Kelly Roshi no that was actually a rude shock Uh, now I've got nowhere to turn you know, until I got the, the recognition, I could rely upon the tradition. I could surrender to the tradition. But when I was, you know, my training, certain things, like in myself, I hadn't accomplished uh, absolute compassionate perspective and, and consciousness is a stable reality ongoing. And I noticed that if, you know, in the, in the institutions that I trained in, a whole lot of the people were pretty screwed up. And that included a lot of the senior students. Their behaviors are still unacceptable. So what do we do about that? What do you do about that? And so suddenly I'm supposed to be the guy that knows what to do about that. <laughs> and that's upsetting, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was like shocking. So I'm, okay, I got nowhere to turn, then I've got to figure this out. I've got to work this out. And, 
and and then fortunately I got uh, stage four throat cancer, yeah, which was sort of the big one, the big death, and from a real practical point of view instead of a philosophical point of view. There's one of death through pure psychedelic psychotropics, and that's biochemical. And then there's the, you know, the philosophically understanding that. But then there's the process of the disintegration of neurological structure, which allows you a freedom from egocentricity. And so that was the final nail in my coffin, you might say. But you're not dead yet. And there's no no stage five. Well, yeah. (laughs) Stage five is true poverty and absolute nothingness. No, for the cancer. (laughs) When stage four is it. Yeah. But you're, you're, yeah, so they, yeah. it was great. But, and fortunately, I, I, I was uh, you know, in fabulous shape in my mid-60s. And uh, the, first they were going to just paleo and let me die. But when I got to MD Anderson, I, I counseled with over 30 docs and flew to Germany for a quick uh, wanted crystal treatment, and that didn't work. And, yeah, smoking uh, crystal doesn't help much. <laughs> no, not for stage four. It can, can really help with immune response right. and stuff. So, so I, I don't mean to... Yeah. be rude no so it's integrative approach you got to do it all and uh when i got back to md anderson uh and we actually got down there and saw them they said well mr kelly you look like you can take a punch so if you're willing to go through it we'll give you a four-month chemo radiation treatment and you might live through this so that was uh six years ago now five six years ago yeah my brother bless his heart uh went through the same thing with pancreatic cancer which is usually your dead by the time they finish telling yeah. you you've got it but uh same to same exact thing an intensive treatment and uh it's been a couple of years now and uh he's clean as a cosmic whistle it can happen yeah. if you've got i guess if you've got the right team and you got the right attitude and, and your body is cooperating yeah you so, got the right genes that helps yeah well, of course <laughs> you didn't start off well how's your rh negative doing i don't have it i believe oh, you you're, be, you're fine on that. Then. Yeah. Uh, God, I was, just, I was just about to ask you something brilliant. Uh, ask him something brilliant, Mark, while I try to remember what it was. I was just about to ask him. <laughs> What's the meaning of life? Life is like a beanstalk, isn't it? No. no. Uh, remember like, that one? No. no, life's a bitch and then you marry one? <laughs> no, no. Oh, God. No, no. But shine on brightly, Procol Harum, where the guy goes, climbs the mountain to find the guru, and he gets all the way up there. And he says, what's the meaning of life? And the guru says, life is like a beanstalk, isn't it? (laughs) 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 Which I always got a big kick out of. But then again, I'm I'm easily amused. I always thought the secret of happiness was living a life consistent with what you believe. How does that sound? Good place place to start. Yeah. You say the meaning of life is life itself. And meaning inside of life is, is is a translation or interpretation. In Buddhist thought, we have something called Tathagata Garbha, or suchness, like a non-dual realization of life, is just exquisite beyond belief. And it includes it includes everything. And then relative mind gets in and starts playing these games of valuation as opposed to the, the truth of the compassion unfolding. Buddha said something very interesting. I got trapped in Buddhism because of the foundational teachings. And he said, everything is burning. Everything is burning. And that's one of the realizations I've had in deep meditation and also my psychedelic work. Is like, everything's on fire, and there's a relative view, and that valuated view is a great mystery to me. You know, and from a non-dual perspective, good and bad are identical. They're just two, they're two fundamental directions of, of relating or reacting. You know, it's like Abdu'l-Bahas said, a scorpion is only evil if it's in your boot. 
Yeah. Yeah. So it's like getting that realization, and then it's like, uh, who was it? Zorba the Greek, the big catastrophe. You know, live, live life, the whole catastrophe. But you're living from a different place. You're living from a different perspective. It's hard to get rid of those filters, even on a Kent with this Micronite filter. It's, <laughs> I mean, everyone's got them. Yeah, it's, it's, and and they're so deep and so reactionary. And then you've got your animal nature as well. But it's like, so it's in the work that we do. It's not about not having the feeling. It's about understanding the difference between reaction and response. So we say, normally I react. We want to consciously respond and compassionately and intelligently respond. Get to the care, get to that depth and a shift in understanding. It's like the Dalai Lama was asked, don't you, aren't you bitter, don't you have hatred for the Chinese? Aren't you, wouldn't you like to be violent towards the Chinese? And he, he looked and he said, he screwed up his face for a minute, he said, well, how would that be expedient? How would that help? <laughs> yes, right. Because he was like, I'm willing to go there if you think it would really help. But that's a definition of, of someone who's coming from that depth of compassionate realization. No, he's got. He's ethnocentric. You know, he's homophobic. He's got a whole solid shit. He's got to work through yet. But, you know. But yeah. Did you see the the newsman who told the Dalai Lama the Dalai Lama joke, and the Dalai Lama didn't get the joke? <laughs> no. Uh, it's, you know, we could do the same joke with you. What What did uh, Dennis Kelly say to the hot dog vendor? Make me Give one. Me one with everything. <laughs> Make me one with everything. <laughs> but you know the rest of that joke. Tell me. All right. So you know, this happened at my monastery. So the guy goes to Coney Island, he wants a Nathan's Frank. He's been waiting three years because he's been in meditation. So we say, okay, you can go. Here's 50 bucks. Get in the bus and go. So he goes. He goes to the vendor. says to the vendor, give me one with everything. The guy looks at him, makes him one, hands it to him. It's got kraut. It's got mustard. Just the most amazing thing. And he gives the guy a 20, bites into it. He, he, he realizes he hasn't got his, his money. He didn't get any change. He looks at the, at the guy and says, hey, where's my change? The vendor looks at him and says, hey, you're a monk. You ought to know change comes from within. <laughs> da dum bump Was that guy have a rim shot thing on his belt? <laughs> <laughs> so I was in, a, I was in, in Dharamsala with, with the Dalai Lama at his, his little spot in the hillside. And uh, we were there as a second-generation Buddhist teachers conference complaining about the uh, behavior of some of the senior Tibetan teachers and, and Zen teachers in the world. And uh, we were asked, why is it they, these teachers, after 20 or 30 years' study, are still screwing up so badly? Not that many of them do, but some do. So why is that? And he said, their insight's not deep enough. And so I said, I put up my hand, and I said, can I be candid, Your Holiness? He said, of course. And I said, bullshit. <laughs> and he smiled. And I said, look, this guy studied with you. I know this man personally. You know, uh, he's spent three three-year solo retreats. He's a geshe. He's got his Ph.D., you might say. You know, uh, what do you mean his insights are down deep enough? I just disagree completely. And he looked at me and he smiled. He said, I know, my son, that's because your insight's not deep enough. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that's a way to weasel out of it. <laughs> oh, that's what I thought, but he had me. And he was correct. Yeah. If your insight's deep enough, compassion will be louder than your selfishness. Now, do, do it, is there any prison work going on with this, with Imando Zen? No. We work on the outside. There's some, there's some, uh, a couple of programs, one in Wisconsin, uh, but uh, nothing, nothing direct. No. I did a uh, program at Washington State Penitentiary several years ago, 
And <laughs> this shows what you'd be up against. Were you, were you a visitor? Or no, a I, no, I went in to, to do this training. <laughs> I, I wasn't a prisoner. Uh, maybe, you know, spiritually, psychologically, but not incarcerated. So I do this, uh, the whole training with the meditation, the guided visualization, blah, blah, blah. We're doing this thing on taking personal responsibility, change from within, yada, yada, yada. Afterwards, this guy comes up to me, one of the prisoners, he goes, I can't thank you enough. He's changed, this experience has changed my life, my entire perspective. And I said, be specific. And he said, the next time I pull a bank job, I'm doing it all by myself. <laughs> Well, you're welcome. <laughs> yes, you're welcome. I'm so glad I was able to be of service. Yes, progress. Yes, progress. Progress, no progress not perfection. <laughs> so that kind of set me back a bit, you know. But just when you think you've really made some breakthrough, right. yeah, it just it never stops. It just keeps going on and on. Do you ever get discouraged when you look at the world and see what's going on? No. Oh, good. <laughs> From an evolutionary perspective, it's straight up and straight down. You know, if you look at the if you look at the the gentle, the very slow grinding flow, you know we're evolving, we're awakening, and it, it's you know, and it's also see the beauty. You know, so there's the pain and the confusion and the po the politics and imperial capitalism that's eating us alive in a finite system. And, you know, so you see all of that, but at the same time, see the growth, see the beauty, see what's going on, see the alternative energy, see people returning to organics, see the organizations that are doing education and, and, and things around the world. So it's like, you know. Yeah, one, one burning, uh, everything is burning. One's crumbling and uh, another is building. Yeah. Doesn't do much good to put your energy into breaking it down because it breaks down by itself. Yeah, are you part of the problem or have you finally woken up and are you part of the solution? Yeah, so have you ever seen the movie American Beauty or The Matrix, either one of those? Well, yeah. American Beauty was a great film. Yeah, uh, same plot. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I woke up. He's after to sleep for 25 years, and one day he said, I woke up. Yes, well, that was because he was tied to his corporate job and his marriage. <laughs> yeah, that could be a real problem. Yeah. Hey, uh, the book is called A Heart Blown Open by Keith Martin Smith. Brilliantly written, fabulous story, a true story. The life and practice of Zen Master Junpo Dennis Kelly Roshi, who is our guest today. Thank you, Dennis. You're a wonderful so. guest. Thank you very much. Hey, time for one short commercial. Sure. It's mondozen.org. M-O-N-D-O-Z-E-N.org. That's linked to our website. It's a good website. Should your computer get a mellow and a deeper understanding of itself? Yes, the computer will evolve if you go to that site. It'll automatically upgrade from 32 to 64. Wow. Thanks again, Dennis. <laughs> hey, thank you, guys. I really love your work. Keep it up. Okay, thanks Thank a lot. You. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Ah, that was a fun show. Uh, uh, Phil's he, had show. Such the he had such the sense of humor. Yeah, of course. I knew he did. Uh, no. I knew he did when I booked him. Book him, Dano. Okay, Outlaw Radio with Magic Man Allen and the Demons of Decadence, including but not limited to... Hi, I'm Burl Bear. Mark C.G. Boyer, the beautiful and talented Lori Downey Jr. That's why she's right here right now. Wow, and White and beautiful. lovely, blonde and beautiful. Come on. Oh, oh, hit me now. Hey, there's Ralphie. Oh. Nice to see you, Ralphie.
the things that'll bring the trauma. Overseas, yeah, we trying to stop terrorism, but we still got terrorists here living in the USA, the big CIA, the blood of the Crips and the KKK. But if you only have love for your own race, then you only leave space to discriminate and to discriminate only generates hate. And when you hate, then you're bound to get irate. Yeah, bad, this is what you demonstrate, and that's exactly how anger works and operates. Make it-